0: much, Tony, for filling in for me and for our music team and our tech team in the back. They do such a great job, and I like to thank them whenever I get a chance to. They put up with me every week, so that's a spiritual gift in and of itself, I think. Tonight we'll be in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 6, so you can turn in your Bibles with me to there. like the guys are handing out the outline for tonight, so there is, a, there is an outline that you can follow along with if you would like, Mark chapter 6, and I'd like to open up in prayer before we go any further. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our time together tonight. We thank you for our time of worship through song, and now, Lord, as we look into the riches of your word, that you would admonish us and teach us and speak to us, Lord, as we have sung. Help us to grasp the heights of the things that you have for us here and to uh, look for the ways that you, have, you will challenge us and, and ask us to change and to, and to uh, transform our hearts, Lord, through your word. Please speak through us, Lord. I pray that your uh, message will come out clear and that you would be glorified, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Thus begins Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, where his fictional characters endure the adventures of the French Revolution from Paris, France, to London, England in the year 1775. Tonight we will read a much different tale of two cities. Certainly much different in most every respect, but also with several similarities to the description that we just read. The biblical author John Mark will tell his own account of the time that Jesus Christ walked upon the earth. And we will see that it was indeed both the best and the worst of times. It was the best of times, The very son of God had come down to earth as a man, bone and flesh, incarnate, to walk upon the soil and breathe the air that he spoke into existence. The creator was now among the creation. He was Emmanuel, God with us. It was the best of times. But it was also the worst of times. This Messiah was not recognized by those who should have known him best. And while many believed, Israel as a nation rejected him. The religious leaders, experts in the scripture, though they were, remained blinded by their jealous rage. And had Jesus Christ, sinless and innocent, put to death, they murdered God. It was the worst of times. And so we pick up Mark's account here in Mark chapter 6. Not about 18th century Europe, but about 1st century Israel. Not located in the busy bustling capital cities, but in backwater towns, obscure hovels that were disregarded and largely ignored, it was to these places that Jesus went to teach and to heal and to love. Nazareth and Gennesaret. Not the well-to-do destinations where you might expect a king to enter. But it was to these places that Jesus did go, and that is where the similarities cease. Tonight is a study in contrast between these two cities as we asked the most important question in the universe, what did they do with Jesus? And then we will turn the question inward, what have we done with Jesus? Look with me, if you will, at Mark 6, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Then he went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? I want you to see, first of all, that they were astonished at Jesus. What we're going to see is in each of these two cities, three responses from each, but they could not be more different. And the first here in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, as he comes back into his, his town that he was raised in, remember he was born in Bethlehem, made a quick trip down to Egypt, and then back into Israel and up to Nazareth where he was raised. And he comes back into his own hometown with his disciples with him, and he walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins to teach as his custom was, and the people were astonished. Jesus' teaching always brings astonishment, but this is not a response of belief. It's a response of intrigue and interest, but not faith. And we see this in other places in Scripture. In Matthew 28 I'm sorry, Matthew seven verse 28, it says that when Jesus ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. In Luke 4.32, it says that they were astonished at his teaching for his his word was with authority. There was a way that Jesus taught that distinguished him from all the other teachers in Israel. Even still today, many continue to be astonished by Jesus' words. Let's look at a few more modern-day responses. Mahatma Gandhi Said this Jesus to me is a great world teacher among others. Unfortunately, Gandhi rejected the idea of Jesus' deity and, to my knowledge, never believed. Even more modern day, Elton John, the famous musician, music star, said this I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the beautiful stories about it, which I loved in Sunday school, and I collected all the little stickers and put them in my book. Unfortunately for Elton, he also went on to blaspheme Christ with some of his statements to justify his lifestyle. I don't think he believes. And then Albert Einstein, a name we're all familiar with, said this, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene Jesus is too colossal colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. Brilliant scientist and mathematician though he was, Einstein lived a very immoral life and to my knowledge never put his faith in Christ. These men, among many others, were astonished at Jesus' teaching, but it was not astonishment to belief. So what did Jesus teach that stirred up such interest? Let's look at some of his radical teachings. In Matthew 10, 34, he said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Wait, I thought you were the prince of peace. You're talking about bringing division. Belief in Christ always brings division. The gospel always brings contrast into the human experience. In John 6, he said, Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. If you remember, a few verses later, it tells us many that were following him walked away. They could not handle this radical statement and did not want to have ears to hear and understand the symbolic nature of his teaching. He also told us that if our right hand causes us to sin, we should cut it off. Of course, he was not promoting dismemberment, but rather, rather a radical look at what sin is and how our holy God sees it, how we must go to any length to stop it. But people couldn't get past some of these things They were astonished, but they didn't believe. Jesus became a thought-provoking sidelight, a person of interest, but not the Son of God, certainly not a Savior. Not in Nazareth at this time. Their astonishment was not this awestruck amazement of belief, but they were just provoked and shocked by what they heard. And so they were astonished at Jesus. The second response is their apostate attitude towards him. We see this in Mark 6. 3 and 4. Look with me at the verses there. Mark 6, number 3 says, Is this not the carpenter? This is the people of Nazareth in the synagogue continuing their critique of Jesus. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. They were offended at him. This word offended means to be led into sin by being repelled away from what they should believe in, in this case, Jesus. Notice they refer to him as this man, term of disrespect and contempt. Remember that these are all Nazarenes. And what was the reputation of Nazareth? Do you remember? Nathaniel summed it up as Philip they proclaimed that the Messiah had come, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course, Philip's response, come and see. And he did, and he believed, but he couldn't at first understand how Messiah and Nazareth could be in the same sentence, much less in the same town. And so these Nazarenes, as they critique what Jesus is saying, perhaps they have started to believe the rhetoric surrounding their town. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe all the haters were right. He's one of us. How dare he assume anything more? And if someone from Nazareth is going to be a great teacher and a great healer, it certainly won't be this carpenter, this son of Mary. In first century culture, It was the son, the son was always referred to with his father's name. The name, the son of, and then the father's name, not the mother's. You can see the genealogies in Matthew and Luke and in the Old Testament. But here they reference Mary, his mother. No doubt, thinking back to the shadow of scandal that surrounded her conception and birth of Jesus. It could also refer to the fact that Joseph had died by this time. But even a dead father's name should have been used. Why this response from Jesus' hometown? Why did they say this? He gives us the answer in the fourth verse that we read. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Notice the progression. Country, large area, relatives, smaller, house, immediate family. Even his own immediate family rejected him. We know that from other places in Scripture. You see, the Nazarenes were too familiar with Jesus. He was their hometown person. He was common, ordinary, and everyday. He was nothing special. This phrase gets repeated here often. Familiarity breeds contempt. And often we look at it in the context of, of a marriage relationship or another type of human-to-human relationship, but it brings up a soul-searching question for us as we consider our relationship with Christ. Has familiarity with Christ bred contempt for him in our hearts? Has Jesus become too familiar to us? For those of us that grew up in church, and even if you haven't but you come regularly, you hear the narratives, the accounts, the miracles, the parables of Christ. We can quote Jesus' words in John 3.16, many other verses. We know Jesus, but the warning here is against complacency, against forgetting that Jesus is the everlasting source of strength and wisdom and light and life and love, and he never gets old, never changes. He's the Alpha and Omega, first and the last the sinless and spotless Lamb of God that takes away our sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus, he says. This is the Jesus we need to run to. This is the Jesus we need to strive for and embrace and endeavor to know even deeper. Don't be satisfied with your relationship in Christ how it is today. Never be satisfied with where you are in relation to Christ. There's always more of him to understand and know. Never become too familiar with Jesus. When Jesus becomes too familiar, he becomes small. And when Jesus becomes small, we look elsewhere for our object of worship. We are by nature creatures of worship. We all worship something or someone. And when we look elsewhere for our worship, we become like the apostate in our practice. So they were astonished at Jesus, apostate from him, and that apostasy led to apathy towards Jesus. Verse number five says, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. It's important from the start to deal with this phrase, this opening phrase of the verse. Now he could do no mighty work there. Must be careful with this, understand what this is actually saying. Are we to conclude that Jesus' deity was somehow lessened, his power was diminished? No. No. He, after all, did heal sick people here. So his power was intact. He was still God. The fact is that the majority of these people living in Nazareth closed their doors in his face. They refused his offer to heal him. That, that was the limit. The limit wasn't in Jesus. It was those that he was trying to minister to. They cut themselves off from him. Their apathy became their downfall. And look what he says there in verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. All he required was faith. That's all he requires today is faith. It's the same. It's faith that Jesus is looking for. He offers grace. He offers the free gift of eternal life, but he requires faith. That passive choice to believe for oneself that Jesus alone saves. It's not a work, faith. It's a passive choice to believe. Their apathetic familiarity with Jesus led them to a lack of faith. It was the worst of times. Jesus then walks away from Nazareth. It was rejected he's not going to force himself on the world as he's rejected he goes and finds those who will accept him imagine the loss of Nazareth on this day their Messiah was walking among them offering to heal actually demonstrating that he could heal because a few sick people were healed their lives were forever transformed but it could have been so much more had the people not rejected him. It was the worst of times. Let's move on to the best of times. A lot of things happen in Mark chapter 6. Uh, he sends out the 12. You hear about the, the history of John the Baptist, how he was killed by Herod. The feeding of the 5,000 happens. Jesus walks on water in this chapter. So many amazing things Drop down with me to verse number 53 in Mark 6. Go right to the end of the chapter. We'll skip all of that. Looking at these two cities. We've looked at Nazareth. Now let's look at our second and final city. So in Mark 6, 53, it says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Verse 54, And when they came out of the boat, immediately... The people recognized him. First response here at Gennesaret is that they recognized Jesus. You can already feel the contrast with Nazareth, can't you? There's already something different here in Gennesaret. There's a thrill in the air, there's excitement brewing, anticipation is growing. Unlike the Nazarenes, these people recognize Jesus. Look at verse 54. When he came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. They saw him and said, it's him. He's here. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you listening for Jesus' voice? Do you recognize him? Are you following him? The greatest source we have for hearing the voice of Jesus is that Bible that you're holding in your hands. The only way to hear his voice is to read it. Jesus also said another person would come and teach us. He promised a person that we need to learn to recognize. In John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He said, I'm going to leave that in the hands of another person. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. See, Jesus Christ is not going to physically walk up those stairs and into the room tonight. But his spirit is present already right here with us. We must learn to recognize the Holy Spirit's voice. Just as Gennesaret saw him and immediately recognized him, we must recognize the spirit's voice. We must understand his leadership in our lives. We must be spirit-led and spirit-controlled people. They recognized Jesus. Secondly, in verse 55, they ran towards Jesus. Look at the text. Mark 6:55. They recognized him and then ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Of course, first they ran away, but it wasn't to run away from Jesus. It was to go get those that they knew needed him into the whole surrounding region. But then they came toward Jesus, bringing the sick to wherever he was. This was an unstoppable kind of running. You get the sense from this that nothing was going to stand in their way of getting people to Jesus. They were anticipating his power and his help. Nothing was going to stop them. I don't know if you've ever watched the videos, you can find them all over on YouTube, of military personnel coming home and their families, uh, you know, surprising their families. So a dad will come into his child's school or a mom into like a sporting event. And the child doesn't know that, their parent is coming home. And so it's a surprise, and they kind of sneak up behind them. What happens as soon as that child sees their parent? They cry, but they run. They run. And nothing else matters. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, it's a high school kid sitting with his buddies, tough guy, until dad in uniform walks in the room that he didn't know was coming. All of a sudden, nothing matters anymore, and nothing gets in his way. All he can see is dad or mom, and he runs and throws his arms around his dad and buries his face in his shoulder, and then he cries. Nothing is going to stop him. I'm sitting there watching those, and my eyes fill up with tears. I'm like, why am I watching this? I don't even know these people. But it's powerful. It's a powerful emotion. I think that is a a sense of what these people in Gennesaret felt as they saw Christ. We've got to get to him and nothing is going to stand in our way. What is your greatest need right now in your life? Just pause and think about that. What is your greatest need, the most pressing need in your life? And where do you run for a solution that need to have it met Could I suggest that Jesus is the answer to whatever need you have are you running to Jesus when life becomes difficult we're going to close the service in a few moments with "I, I run to Christ we sing that song often but do we really do that or are we running towards ourselves or our wisdom or our resources Run to Christ. Don't let anything stop you. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. He calls this out to us. I love these verses. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, find rest for your souls soul rest I can't think of anything more comforting than soul rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light notice there are two prerequisites for coming to Jesus first all you who labor this word means weariness from being beaten Weariness from work, exertion, or heat. Are you weary in your life? You're a candidate for coming to Jesus. Second prerequisite, says all who are heavy laden. These are a description of one that is overburdened by a crushing weight or load. Do you have a crushing burden that you've been staggering under? you're a candidate to come to Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, come to me all you who have your lives cleaned up. He doesn't say, come to me all you that don't struggle with sin, have everything together, have everything figured out, your lives are in order, your houses hum along like a well-oiled machine, your kids are perfectly in a row and everything's great. I'm so thankful that's not the case. Labor and heavy laden. Let's go back to our text here. They begin to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. So we see people coming to Jesus and also bringing others with them to Jesus. This starts with those we are closest to. I don't think they went into strangers' homes and pulled their sick out of the home. I think everyone went to the people they knew and brought them. And it starts with those we are closest to, right in our own homes and our families. As a dad, it is my responsibility to bring my family to Jesus, just as these people in Gennesaret did. Not always very good at doing that, admittedly. It's an ongoing process, I think, for all of us. Moms have this responsibility as well. Are you bringing your children to Jesus? Grandparents, you have a unique role in a position to bring your grandchildren to Jesus. And the process just continues out from there, like ripples on a surface of water, ever-expanding, reaching to more and more people that God allows into our circle of influence. We must run to Jesus and bring them with us. Notice, it doesn't say they went to the people and sent them to Jesus. They didn't go to the sick and the lame and the blind and the hurting and say, hey, there's a guy that can help you. He's right down the road. And then keep going. They went and found them and brought them to Jesus. We can't bring people to Jesus unless we are also going to him. If you are not pursuing Christ, you can't honestly, and I can't honestly, bring anyone to Christ for healing and for help whether it's an unbeliever that needs salvation or a believer that needs to be healed and helped by Jesus. If I'm not pursuing him, but I'm sending someone else, what does that make me? A hypocrite. We must be pursuing Christ if we're going to run towards him with others. And so these people at Gennesaret recognized Jesus, they ran towards Jesus Number three, they reached for Jesus. Look back at the text, Mark 6, 56. It says, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Well. This hem of the garment holds a special significance because we must remember when we study the life of Christ that he was an obedient and righteous Jewish man. And part of the Mosaic law required Israelites to make tassels on their clothing. So Jesus was an obedient Jewish man. He obeyed the law. The Bible tells us that. All 613 commands were perfectly obeyed by Christ. Not the Pharisaic extra-biblical commands. He broke a lot of those to show them their error. But he followed God's law perfectly. We find in Numbers 15 that the Lord speaks to Moses. He's giving him the commandments and how the people are supposed to live. And he says to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, to put a blue thread on the tassels of the corners, and you shall have the tassel, and you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry which, to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. It's graduation season. Many of us have seen something hanging off the hats of our graduates. What was that? A tassel. I'm not saying it was the same thing. I don't think it was exactly the same as that, but it kind of gives us, it's a decorative fringe. Sadly, The Pharisees had taken the small token of holiness before God and made it into a symbol of piety before men. And Jesus called them on that. He said in Matthew 23, 5, speaking of the Pharisees, all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. In their minds, the broader and more prominent the tassel, the hem of the garment, the more holy they appear to other people. The Pharisees certainly would not have allowed a sick person to touch their precious tassels, but not so with Jesus. And I think it's a beautiful picture. As we consider the law that was given there in Numbers and the symbolic nature of those hems and those tassels, those fringes, and what they stood for, They were commanded to remind the Jewish people of God, to remind them of his laws, his deliverance, to be holy. And now Jesus comes in, and they begin to touch that same tassel, that same fringe. And it now becomes a a physical, visual, tactile source of health and healing. It was now more than a reminder of what God had done delivering them from Egypt. It was a visible, tangible evidence of what God is doing in the present. Healing. This is not the first time that the touch of the hem of Jesus' garment produced a healing effect. Mark chapter 5, just a chapter before, we see the same similar, I should say, similar miracle occur. I don't have the verses on the screen, but I'd like to read them. If you want to turn, you're welcome to Mark chapter 5, just over a page or two, verse 25, Mark five twenty-five says this. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She grabbed the tassel, touched the hem, the fringe. For she said in verse 28, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And so she does that. And in verse 29, we see the result. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. For 12 years, she'd been suffering with this issue of blood. It made her unclean, unfit for temple worship. Probably made her isolated from others, including potentially her own family. And now she's healed. In verse 30, Jesus knew, knowing in himself, that power had gone out, turned around in the crowd, said, who touched my clothes? And then you can read the rest there. She comes in trembling. And in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. It was likely that news of this happening had reached far and wide. After all, it was done in a large crowd. And news like that travels fast. And so when these people knew that Jesus was coming and they heard about this woman that had been made well by touching the fringe of his garment, they too begged him, that they might just touch the hem. What faith these people had. What stark contrast to those in Nazareth who just mocked him and ridiculed him and turned their backs on him. And the, the humility, the humbleness of these people here in Gennesaret and the faith that they had, the deep faith to say, if that's all it takes to just touch the hem, that's all I need. I think it's amazing it says as many as touched him were made well Jesus made no distinction from one person to the next he could have had a tax collector perhaps a harlot perhaps a rabbi or some other political leader lined up all sick all were made well There's no distinction between class, no prejudice, no favoritism, just love for all. There was no sickness, there was no paralyzation, no blindness, deafness, no possession, no demon possession that was too much for Jesus. All were made well. Some fall into the lie of the devil that says you're not really worthy of Jesus. You have sinned too much. You have gone too far. You're too damaged for him to heal. Perhaps that describes someone here, or someone watching. Maybe you've come to Jesus for healing before and he's healed you, but you've fallen back into that sin or that issue And maybe that's happened more than once. Maybe you've come to him over and over again and you feel like eventually he's going to run out of love and grace for me and I'm going to be stuck in this position. The good news is that's not the case with Jesus. It's not how he sees it. The Bible says Jesus is full of grace and truth. We know that Jesus is God. We know that God is infinite. That means his characteristics share that infinity with him. And so as we consider his grace, there is never a person that is out of reach of his marvelous grace. Grace extends far beyond our finite ability and capacity to comprehend it. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that according to the riches of his grace which he made abound in us. We're never too far gone. As many as touched him were made well. The sick were too weak to stand much less walk or run. So they reached. They reached for him. Maybe that describes you today. Overwhelmed, crushed, buried under a load of stress or physical needs or a failing relationship or some kind of sin and all you can do is reach. Well, Good news, that's all that's required. So now we ask ourselves this question. How will you respond to Jesus? As we conclude, I'd like to address those of us who are believers. Christians, let's talk for a moment. Certainly, there's a great application in this text for bringing people to Jesus. We've already mentioned it and discussed it. And I don't want to lose that application, but if you'll allow me, I'd like to set it carefully aside, and I'd like us to just address our own hearts for a moment. I'd like you to consider the landscape of your own heart. Consider those sick people and those that were lame and paralyzed and oppressed. Instead of thinking of them as all the people in your life that you need to bring to Christ, now remember, we're not losing that. We're carefully setting it beside and looking in our hearts. Consider the landscape of your heart and the issues that you are personally dealing with right now. And ask yourself, what is my solution? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? said this earlier, it's worth repeating, I would submit to you that Jesus is the solution to every problem we face. When Jesus came to Gennesaret and stepped out of that boat onto the shore and the people saw him, remember they said, he's here, he's come. Quick, go get all our problems and bring them to him. Go get all our issues, all our lame, all our pain, all our hurting, and bring it to him. He's here. He's come. He's the solution. The solution to our problems is here. Let's bring everybody to him. Suggesting that's exactly what we need to do with the issues that we're facing in our own hearts and lives. He's the solution. Bring them to him. Say, how do we do that practically? Well, that that would be a, another message and probably a series of them. But the word I'd like to focus on for tonight is the word surrender. Surrender. See, in order for healing to take place, could, the people at Gennesaret had to surrender him, They had to bring the people to wherever he was. They had to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. They had to bring their problems to Jesus and lay them down for him to deal with. They couldn't bring their doctors and, and others along. They had to just bring them to Jesus and let Jesus deal with them in his way, in his time. They had to trust that he would care, take care of them, because they knew they couldn't fix their own problems. They had had moved past themselves and their own abilities and their own solutions, and they had to go to Christ. They needed Jesus. I want to say something. I want to make a statement that might sound radically untrue, And we'll probably go against the grain of our traditional way of talking and thinking about Jesus. And then I'm going to explain that. And and then I'm going to show you from Scripture how this is true. I'm going to prove what what I'm going to say from the Bible. So don't throw any stones when I say this. Jesus doesn't meet all our needs. You say, wait a minute, I thought you just said Jesus was the solution to all our problems. He is the solution. But Jesus doesn't meet all our needs. Explanation. Sometimes Jesus changes what we need. He doesn't always meet the things we say are our needs. Sometimes he changes what we need. You say, can I prove that from scripture? Yes, I'd be glad to. Thanks for asking. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul said this, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul said to Jesus, Lord, this is a need in my life. This thorn, whatever it was, this messenger of Satan needs to be gone. I need you to remove the thorn. It's my need. It's my greatest need, Lord. Please, meet my needs. But Jesus did not meet his need, he changed it. Verse number nine, look at Jesus' answer. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to leave that thorn right where it is, Paul, because my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's response Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What was Jesus doing with Paul? He didn't meet his need. He changed Paul's need. And Paul was surrendered to that truth. He said, I will gladly boast in this infirmity because I have Jesus. So I have everything I need. His grace is sufficient for me. Even if he leaves the thorn, I'm still going to boast in his grace. As you examine your own heart tonight, which city does it most reflect? We could have titled this message A Tale of Two Hearts because that's really what God is most concerned about. So do you have a Nazareth heart? Or do you have a heart with Nazareth tendencies? That has Jesus become too familiar for you, too commonplace, ordinary? Yeah, it's Jesus. It's the Bible. You know, worship. It's everyday thing. Have you become apathetic towards him? Perhaps he's been knocking on some doors and you've closed them in his face? Have you been seeking solutions to your problems somewhere else besides Jesus and his marvelous gospel? Or would you, would you say or would God say, better yet, as he examines your heart, that you have a at heart? Does he see you recognizing and running and reaching for, for Christ? Perhaps you can see both. I'm sure we all probably can. It's the battle of the flesh and the spirit. Romans chapter 7, it's going on all the time. So what changes need to take place, dear saints, in order to surrender to Jesus? What do you need to surrender to him? Perhaps there is a thorn in your flesh like Paul had. It's out of your control you can't make it leave you've prayed about it perhaps you need to surrender that you recognize that his grace is sufficient what do you need to surrender christian lastly you might be a person here or watching that has never put your faith in christ maybe you've been like those in nazareth And the gospel has been offered and Christ has been offered and you've closed the door every single time. You might know about Jesus. You might acknowledge the Bible. You might have some knowledge of Christianity, but you can't say that you're a true believer in Christ. You've never considered Jesus as the solution to your greatest need, which is eternity, and where are you going to spend it This life is fleeting. How many years do we get here? 70, 80, 90, 100 for some. Some go a little past. What is that in light of eternity? It's nothing. James says it's just a, a breath of wind, a gust of air, and it's poof, it's gone, a vapor. Where will you spend eternity? Eternal life is only offered by God on God's terms. Just as the people in Gennesaret had to bring the sick to Jesus and lay them so they could touch the hem, that was the terms. That's not the terms for eternal life. The person didn't change, Jesus, but there's no hem to touch. Instead, there's faith to place in Christ. See, God's God's standard for eternal life is perfection. And you say, well, then there's no hope for any of us because none of us are perfect. You're right, there is no hope outside of Christ. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful, so wondrous. Because God made a way that we could put our faith in Christ. You see, Jesus did everything to satisfy the Father. God is fully satisfied in Christ. There's no good work left to do. Jesus did them all perfectly perfectly obeyed God's law. He, he completed the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. And God is satisfied in Christ alone. Nothing we can bring to the table even comes close. Even on our best day, we are not perfect like Christ. And so God says, I have a requirement for eternal life and that's faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. The greatest good work to ever be done was done by Jesus Christ when he laid his life down on the cross, was buried, and resurrected three days later. That is our hope, and that is what we put our faith in for eternal life. Maybe tonight you realize that just like the sick people in Gennesaret, you also have a sickness. In fact, we all are infected. We are all infected by the sickness of sin. The wages for those sins is death. eternal separation from God the second death Jesus came down to earth and died in our place and so as we conclude tonight I'd like you to consider if you've not placed your faith in Jesus and what he has done consider the gospel it is the only solution to your greatest need which is eternity where will you spend it Your faith in Christ will determine the answer to that. Let's close our eyes, please, and bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we've looked into your word tonight, and we've seen this tale of two cities, and we've considered our own hearts. And for us as believers, Lord, there's a challenge here. There's a warning. Are we going to live a Nazareth life or are we going to live the life of Gennesaret this week? Please help us to bring these truths down into the daily grind this week as we go out into workplaces and into homes and into kitchens and into yards and into all the places that we'll go that you would help us to bring these truths with us from your word. Help us to consider that Jesus Christ, your son, is the greatest, is the only solution that we have. I pray for those that have not put their faith in Christ. They're still thinking and trying their own solutions, their own good works. Help them to see it's useless, and that only Christ saves. I pray if there's one here tonight in the room or someone watching online, that they would recognize their need and cry out to you in faith and believe. That's all it takes. Please, Lord, reveal yourself to us in the ways that you want to this week. We pray this all in Jesus' name.